is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, has David Cameron broken his promise to the armed forces? There's pressure of redundancy. They're feeling it from all sides. They're breaking the promises that they made in opposition, and there's growing resentment. And how the search and rescue helicopter deal collapsed. This is yet another incident that should make us very concerned about the way in which certain private contractors seem to be buying influence. BFBS. Headlines. A coroner's ruled a bomb disposal expert was unlawfully killed while on active service in Afghanistan. An inquest her staff sergeant Olaf Schmidt didn't have the equipment he needed to detect the device that killed him in October 2009. An investigation's underway into a plane crash in the Irish Republic in which six people died. Twelve people were on the flight from Belfast to Cork. The plane overturned after landing in heavy fog. A former Labour MP has been found guilty of making false expense claims. Jim Devine defrauded the taxpayer of more than £8,000. India and Pakistan will resume peace talks, halted after the Mumbai terrorist attacks in 2008. Ministers from both countries will meet over the coming months. Lord Prescott's among the latest people warned he may have been targeted by phone hackers working on behalf of newspapers. Scotland Yard says it's identified a number of new potential victims. And it looks like West Ham's won the battle with Tottenham Hotspur to take over the Olympic Stadium after next year's London Games. An official announcement is due tomorrow. That's the latest. I'm Vicky Turner. Since it came to power, the coalitions insisted it's determined to improve the lives of members of our armed forces and their families. This government is very pro our armed services, our armed services families, and making sure we give them a good deal. But are David Cameron's words were matched by his government's actions? This week, the head of the Royal British Legion has accused the Prime Minister of going back on his promise to put the military covenant on a legal footing. And the Army Families Federation says there's a tidal wave of low morale. Its survey found four-fifths of current personnel feel like leaving because of financial worries. Julie McCarthy is its chief executive. There's pressure on their pensions, there's pressure of redundancy. They're feeling it from all sides, which at a time when we are still fighting very hard in Afghanistan and the government are trying to stand by the covenant, perhaps the the government aren't honouring their side of the covenant. The Shadow Defence Secretary, Jim Murphy, agrees. While in opposition, the Conservative Party said they would um, honour commitment, they said they would go further than Labour, and yet they're unpicking so much of what Labour sought to achieve. So... They're breaking the promises that they made in opposition and there's growing resentment. But David Cameron's pointing to changes he's already made. We said we would double the operational allowance for people serving in Afghanistan. We've done that. We said that for the first time we would increase, we'd introduce a pupil premium for the soldiers' children who go to our schools. We have done that. We've said that your leave should start when you land back in the UK, not when you leave Afghanistan. We are doing that. So what's really happening? Is morale sinking across the forces? And is the government doing enough? On the line is Sue French, Welfare Director at the Royal British Legion. Thanks for your time today, Sue. Um, You say the coalition's watered down its promises to the forces. What specifically are you accusing them of doing? Well, uh, I think, as previous people have said, back in July, the Prime Minister said that his intention was to write down a new military government into the law of the land. Uh, What the uh, bill is doing 
is enshrining an obligation on Parliament to report against the Covenant. But what it's not done is enshrined the Covenant in law. So that's our first point. Uh, and uh, the second point is, uh, it is the government who will be reporting on there in this bill. The government will be reporting on its performance against the covenant. Uh, it has removed what is already a very uh, productive process, which is the independent scrutiny of an external reference group, which was set up by the last government, to oversee that report, uh, to give us that independence uh, for the country to know that it's being done rather than being told it's being done. OK, well, let, let's look at that first point you made, at the claim that the government's preparing a U-turn on the promise to enshrine the military covenant in law. Here's the Armed Forces Minister, Nick Harvey. It's very difficult to understand quite what they're getting at. For the first time, we're going to have an Armed Forces covenant written down covering all three services. It's getting a, a, a legal status because the Secretary of State for Defence is going to present an annual report uh, to Parliament on how well the nation is fulfilling its duties under the Armed Forces Covenant. That will be debated by Parliament, the public, the press, the members of the Armed Forces, the charities that represent them. I would have thought the British Legion ought to welcome this as a, a really, really positive step. A really positive step, Sue. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I think... Uh, Chris and Kinzar's Director General made it very clear. It is a very welcome uh, approach, the overall the Armed Forces Bill, but to admit in the legislation the actual covenant itself does rather put the, court, the, the horse before the cart. Uh, you know, the government is going to report on the principles, but the principles themselves are not going to be enshrined in law. Mm. Ministers have been saying over and over on the, in terms of the allowances and the cutbacks that will be coming um, that we all have to share the burden. The country's in trouble, and that should apply to people um, in the armed forces as well. Um, what's your point on that? Well, I think, of course, we recognise that. And, and, you know, we are playing increasingly, actually, as a charity, a role in trying to fill some of the gaps that government are quite clearly not able to fill. But uh, this has really come from our campaign some years ago about the covenant really not being properly honoured, and a number of things have changed and improved since then. But uh, what this government said it was going to do was to commit that covenant into law, uh, and uh, that would make sure that people who are serving now and people who are leaving now know that they have a principal document in law that's going to look after them <clears throat> that they can refer to. And I think this is just such a missed opportunity uh, if we don't, having got people to understand this and commit to it, not to formalise it and put it into a document that will have legal standing, is actually a real missed opportunity. And it's not quite doing what the government said it was going to do. Uh, uh, I'm joined in the studio by defence analyst Christopher Lee. Do you think the government's going back on its promises? No, I don't think it's going back on a promise yet. Um, to do this, to produce in law a covenant which began, if you like, in the public mind is do we support the services, do we support all the things, should they get a better deal than most other people, um, then I think that's in everybody's interest and I think government included supports that. What has been difficult for everybody, and I've talked to people in Whitehall about this, is the legal aspects of it. How do you actually frame this in legislative form uh, now for every single issue? I think it will come, um, but I think that what's going into the Armed Forces Bill at the moment is really will be the template for it. I actually think there will be something, but it's going to be, well, it's going to be a, be a leg trap 
uh, which the, the, the legal guys are actually sort of rubbing their hands and saying, there are so many things. I counted 48 different things that you could, that you could challenge the, the seemingly perfect covenant if it was put into uh, legislation. Mm. Uh, and Sue, moving on to the, the subject of, of the morale, the Army Families Federation claims four-fifths of current personnel would like to quit. Um, do you think morale is on the floor? I think times are hard for everybody, and I think particularly for people in the armed forces, I think they're, they're almost being attacked on both sides. Uh, you know, they have the stress uh, of actually having people away from home or being themselves on operations. And, you know, although there is a, a alleged end in sight, people's confidence about that is, is going to be quite thin. Uh, they have difficulties at home, services that they're being encouraged to make better use of, uh, as, uh, as things they've relied on from them, the armed forces are being having to be rationalised, taken away from them. Uh, and they see, as, as um, I think Julie said earlier, tensions and red- redundancies looming. So I think it is a group of people, you know, it is, a, it is a part of our community feeling very much under threat. And I think this is why there's a, such a, a strong feeling about this, um, this having been a promised opportunity and worries about how serious this government really is about it. We're very realistic about the point your defence uh, spokesman raised. Mm. Um, but I think there are some things that we understood were going to be in this document which are really not there, which is disappointing. Uh, Christopher, if those four-fifths of people that were surveyed uh, by the Army Families Federation really do follow through and lead the armed forces, we're going to have a real shortfall, aren't we, in personnel? Do you know, ever since I was a, a junior officer in the Navy, um, I've had, I think, about four-fifths of the guys saying, I'm thinking of leaving. Uh, you, you, it, it, it's not it's a difference between saying four-fifths are so angry that they're going to quit. Uh, the latest defence figures that are out today, for example, on recruiting, show there's a fall in the number of people who are thinking or fall in the number of people who have left. That's largely because there are not a lot of jobs to go to. Mm-hmm. So I think we just just be a bit cautious about thinking that four-fifths of the Navy, uh, the Army and the Air Force are about to walk out. All right. Sue Free, thank you very much for your time today. For months now, there have been questions about the way the Ministry of Defence handles big money projects. But this week, one of the most controversial has been in the spotlight. Plans to privatise the UK's search and rescue helicopter service are on hold after it emerged the preferred bidder had access to commercially sensitive information. It's another example of the problems plaguing defence procurement. Paul Osborne has more. It's a proposal so controversial it reportedly attracted royal concern. Prince William apparently raising his concerns with David Cameron about the future of the RAF search and rescue teams, including his own on Anglesey. Now that £6 billion deal is on ice, and MOD police are investigating how commercially sensitive details ended up in the hands of one member of the firm tipped to take over. The Soteria Consortium volunteered that information and now says it's disappointed by the government's decision. It all centres on a former member of an MOD project team who went on to advise the consortium on its bid. A potential conflict of interest and one that worries the Tory MP, Douglas Carswell. This is yet another incident that should make us very concerned about the way in which certain private contractors seem to be buying influence. And I'm not saying it has happened, but I think we need to investigate the full circumstances, and I I think we should be worried. Admiral Lord West was a Labour defence minister. He thinks new rules are needed for those crossing from government jobs 
to the firms that bid for government business. I have no difficulty with it in principle that uh, military men who have, of course, a great deal of knowledge of the military end up in defence firms. There mustn't be a sort of tacit agreement with somebody that, oh, look here, old boy, in a couple of years' time, when you finish in the service, you know, we'll give you a very nice job in mm. whatever company, because I'm afraid you would have to be a saint not to let that affect your decision-making. While the postponement is an embarrassment for the MOD, it could be a blessing in disguise for the RAF search and rescue teams across the country whose futures were threatened by the privatisation. Angus Robertson leads the Scottish National Party at Westminster. What this effectively means uh, is that there is an opportunity to rethink the whole provision of search and rescue. I'm a strong supporter of the current system which allows for RAF and Royal Navy seeking helicopters with military crews uh, to provide a significant part of the UK search and rescue capability. And I think what was at risk with the privatisation scheme would have seen the exclusion of, of military aircrew and might have helped uh, exacerbate the threat that there are to, to key military facilities, including the likes of RAF Lossiemouth. All this as the man in charge of the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency, Vice Admiral Sir Alan Massey, was telling MPs that search and rescue could look very different in five years. Well, the government says it's now looking again at how to provide those services. What's not clear is whether that means a reprieve for the RAF's teams. And we still don't know how much this failed process has cost the taxpayer. Paul Osborne reporting. Well, Christopher Lee is still with me. On the line is James Blix, Blix, uh, defence correspondent at the Financial Times. James, um, it's hugely embarrassing that a preferred bidder has access to supposedly confidential information, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's it's embarrassing on 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 all sides. It's obviously hugely embarrassing for the bidder because it all happened within their system, so to speak. But it's also embarrassing for the MOD. I mean, at the end of the day, this is one of the biggest privatisation projects the government has. It's worth six billion pounds. It has been going on for a number of years. Companies had spent millions on it. The the government had spent about ten million already on the tendering process. And you find this situation in which um, somebody who had been working within the MOD on the contract and on the bidding process then seemed to go off and work for one of the bidders. Uh, and obviously the rules and regulations surrounding how that person left the MOD and was then able within a certain period of time to go and work for a bidder, uh, that, that's something that's going to have to be looked at very, very carefully indeed. Yeah, yeah, James, just explain to us exactly what the rules are at the moment on people leaving the MOD for jobs and joining jobs in the defence industry. Well, I think at the moment you only have to spend three months months of gardening leave, so to speak. I don't think it's that long a period of time, and I don't think from what I know that it's that well defined in terms of what you can and can't do afterwards. I mean, you know, I, I think that there are certainly going to be a lot of questions asked about whether you have to have a much tighter system of regulations. Uh, Christopher, it, it just adds the questions over the way the, the MODs run, doesn't it? Yeah, or not run in, in the way people would imagine. The, uh, the Defence Committee was questioning the uh, Permanent Undersecretary um, um, this week. And the whole tenor of it was that the MOD is badly run, but they're trying to get it right. And this whole question of uh, when should people go and join companies, it's not just one guy, it's not just one official. Ministers... You know, as soon as the red box is taken away from them, off they go to join some company. Senior officers, there's a whole gang of senior officers sitting in the Army and Navy Club every lunchtime with their commercial <laughs> contacts, and they start working out where they're you going. You see them, do you? Yeah, and they, they, they start working out there when they're going two years before they actually sort of exit the service. So it's been going on for a long time, and in theory, 
in theory, it should work rather well because they're up to date with the information. Uh, but it's quite difficult when you come to monitor it. And James is absolutely right. It's embarrassing also for the company that spent all these millions of pounds trying to get their act together and thinking they've got the contract. Well, the top civil servant at the MOD has faced questions this week over its performance and pressed by Conservative MP and former UN commander in Bosnia, Bob Stewart, Ursula Brennan confirmed the impact of the decision to scrap Nimrod. We can't see underneath the water in the, the seas around us except using helicopters with dunkers. In other words, we have lost, a, we have a gap in our capability and we are blind, and we have been blind, um, around the, our coasts since March when the last Nimrod was flying. Yes, we have removed a capability. Um, I would prefer not to comment on what, that, what the implications of that are for our security because I don't think that's a, a helpful thing to discuss. But I do confirm that we have removed a capability and that increases the risk that, that we take. But we mitigate that risk by the range of other things that we do. Not fully, though. What, what you're looking at all the time is a balance of risk. We have taken some more risk. We recognise that. Christopher, how significant do you think that statement is there by Ursula Brennan? Just note the word that she used, I can confirm. This has been already uh, spoken about by chiefs of staff, uh, chief of the air staff, the last uh, chief of the defence staff and defence ministers. Everyone knows the consequences uh, of, of the Nimrod going. And I should point out that Bob Stewart, the MP, um, he was really uh, declaring his interest, I suppose, because it's, I think it's his brother or his brother-in-law actually commanded the Nimrod squadron. So he had an interest. It didn't add anything, which is a pity, excepting for one thing, which Ursula Brennan didn't go into and couldn't go into, um, ASW, anti-submarine warfare, which is a large part of the Nimrod's job, or mm. would have been part of the Nimrod's job, is is only part of the whole system of, of, of uh, helicopters, of, of, of frigates. The second thing, the question I wanted him to ask her, is does this mean that we're going to have to buy a P3 Orion variant from the Americans to replace and do the job and fill the gap that Nimrod have done, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> you want to ask James Blitz, ja actually, because yeah. he is going to be appearing before the same committee next week. James. I don't, think, I don't know if it's clear whether the, um, they are going to do that at the moment. I think, they go, I think the, the, the MOD's position is that they're going to have to wait and see how things develop. I mean, they are taking the view at the moment that um, they can obviously run without uh, the Nimrod capability. I mean, Nimrod is... It's an appalling situation. I, I'm astonished in many ways this doesn't make more headlines in the papers these days. Not only, as Christopher's saying, because of the loss of the capability, but the sheer amount of cash that has been spent to see these aircraft merely being dismantled is absolutely staggering. I mean, the committee confirmed, the, the, the Permanent Secretary confirmed that it is about three and a half billion pounds that has been spent only for this to go nowhere. It's quite extraordinary. All right, James Blitz, Defence Correspondent at the Financial Times. Thanks for your time. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come this week, should everyone who serves in our forces be given a medal? They could hand on to their children and grandchildren, be proud of that. A recognition, an award, an honour from the Queen for your service would be very welcome indeed. 
Hosni Mubarak remains Egypt's president despite more than two weeks of demonstrations on the streets of Cairo and other cities. Huge numbers turned out earlier this week, insisting his office to step down in the autumn, and it doesn't go far enough. Egyptian officials have said the revolt is fading and the country's getting back to normal. But one activist, Khaled Abdallah, says that's not true. People are coming out for the first time. Um, people who were undecided are coming out for the first time. There's no centralisation to this. You know, there's no, there's no public relations department. There's nothing like that. What there is is that there, there is a, a gradually growing consensus, um, uh, in my opinion, around the country um, about what this regime is and what needs to happen and, and the fact that it needs to go. Among some Egyptians, though, there's anger at the protesters and concern over the damage they're doing to the country's international image. Magdi Tolba runs a giant clothes factory in Cairo, employing 4,000 people. Not a single one in this country is not looking for more freedom, is not looking for more reforming, is not looking for better standard of living. Food prices, you know, going up. Everybody has the right to demonstrate, but nobody has the right to destroy. Why 85 million Egyptians has to pay for the guys in the Tahrir Square? How it comes that half a million or one million even, you know, which I don't believe such figures, is going to take a decision for 85 million Egyptians, you know. 85 million Egyptians now, they don't know what to do. The United States continues to call for a transition to democracy, but it seems to want Egypt's rulers to go faster. Let's cross to Washington and the BBC's correspondent there, Andrew North. Uh, Andrew, thanks for your time. Uh, it seems the White House is losing patience, but officials in Egypt are starting to get angry at US demands. Well, it's a very complicated position, I think, uh, that the, the U.S. Is, is, is taking because, uh, uh, on the one hand, they do appear to be stepping up the pressure again on uh, President Mubarak to go, but we know that uh, they have been prepared for him to stay on until the elections planned for, planned for September. But I think, uh, as they've seen the protests carrying on, as they've heard uh, um, more criticism of their position, uh, the White House has got a little nervous, as, uh, as some put it here, at being caught on the wrong side of history. And so you've heard this call from the, the Vice President, Joe Biden, uh, for the, uh, the lifting of the emergency law in place, of course, ever since uh, Mubarak uh, took power, which allows, to, allows the police to hold people indefinitely without, without charge, and other specific measures. But the other thing you, uh, that... that kind of partly explains the, the U.S. position is the, is the advice and caution that they're getting from some of their regional allies, um, Saudi Arabia, other Arab countries, and also Israel, who are quite nervous about what's going on there. So I think the, 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 the feeling within the U.S. is they do want Mubarak to go. They, they, they absolutely realize that, uh, as the White House press secretary put it, the genie is out of the bottle. Um, but they are, uh, they are trying to tread quite a delicate position. And those subtleties, I think, are probably lost on the protesters. But I think the message that's probably coming through is that it's better for them to keep protesting. The whole situation, though, has put the US in a difficult position, hasn't it, given its past support of Mubarak and his regime? And how does it actually balance the public image of upholding democracy with the need for a sympathetic ally in the Middle East? That, that's right, absolutely. I mean, it is, of course, deeply in bed uh, with uh, with the Mubarak government. Uh, you know, it's been bankrolling him for, for years. It's basically the armourer uh, of, of, of Egypt, $1.5 billion a year of aid, and most of that goes to the, to the Egyptian military. Uh, so so it, it can't suddenly, it can't 
uh, easily cut those ties. And, and then, of course, it also has to bear in mind its relationships with uh, other allies around the region. Now, of course, there are many uh, here and, of course, especially in the Arab world who will say, well, the U.S. Uh, stuck with this kind of policy for too long. And this was the inevitable result by propping up uh, governments like uh, Mubarak's and the many other uh, uh, authoritarian regimes uh, across the Middle East. Um, so this was this was an inevitable result. Uh, it is now um, trying to extricate itself, if you like, but uh, the the outcome is still far from clear. Uh, briefly, Christopher, what do you think will resolve the situation in Egypt? Well, classically, the first thing you would do is to get an agreement to set up an independent judiciary. If you have an independent judiciary, when it comes to votes, uh, then people will be satisfied that the judiciary is actually for the votes. What you can't do is put more food on the table as you can't give them more jobs, you can't give them more education straight away. The other thing is watching the army and the security services. And then we forget sometimes that the, uh, Egypt has a very, very... Uh, Quite, quite a sinister security service. But the army is very important. When uh, Vice President Suleiman said, uh, you know, we have to be careful of a coup, then my watchword, going back, I suppose, to Nasser, is watch for the colonels. Eventually the colonels will be used, or they might use the colonels as an excuse. Mm. Uh, because you remember, it, 17 days ago, uh, when this whole thing started, people were talking about, oh, maybe they'll be gone by Friday. Uh, Mr. Mubarak thinks he's holding out for some time, but a judiciary is the clue to the whole thing. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Andrew North, thank you very much for your time. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Should everyone who serves in the military be given a medal, regardless of where they are or what they do? If it happened, up to four million veterans would be entitled, but ministers say the medal would devalue those recognised for serving in conflicts overseas. This week, the Labour MP, Dennis McShane, took the campaign for a National Defence Medal to the Commons, and I asked him why. We're much more conscious, I think, of the armed services and their service than ever we were in the past, and I think many veterans and many members of the public would like to see people who've served in the armed services, going right back even to 1940s and 50s, with a medal to commemorate that. They can wear on Remembrance Day, they can hand on to their children and grandchildren, be proud of that. And I think that idea of a recognition, an award, an honour from the Queen for your service would be very welcome indeed. What kind of people are you thinking of in particular who didn't get a medal, who you think deserves one? We've got a problem from World War II with people on the Arctic conways. My own uncle died uh, on his ship in those. They didn't get a medal. Bomber Command people didn't get a medal. Afterwards, we've got people who were involved in the Berlin airlift. 39 British servicemen lost their lives in that. The people who served in Cyprus, they didn't get a medal. But you, you mentioned the MOD. They do say it would devalue the medals that already exist. Why are you putting yourself in conflict with the MOD? Well, that, frankly, is a bit silly. I mean, the, the, there are medals for long service in the, the Territorial Army. That doesn't devalue medals for gallantry. There's the Elizabeth Cross now, which goes to families. That doesn't devalue the George Cross or the Victoria Cross. It's a fight. Believe me, I was a minister. You have to take the civil servants and the major generals and take them by the scruff of the neck and say, look, we're elected. I mean, it, we've got now in the current coalition government uh, MPs and ministers who've actually seen uh, armed service. They're the ones in charge. 
Dennis McShane speaking to me earlier. Uh, Christopher, the government's against it, but would a National Defence Medal be such a bad thing? Well, I can see, I can see some of the point of it. Um, and remember, <laughs> yeah, but only a bit of it. I mean, Churchill said I mean, his whole uh, ambition, certainly at the beginning of the 20th century, um, was to go for glory and medals, because that meant money. Mm. Um, but I don't know, I've got this sort of feeling that the services deserve medals. Every one that they earn is very, very much deserved. So you think uh, it would perhaps take away from it if it were to be introduced for the medals for... Well, you know, we'll get like the Americans are not careful. We'll have one for sharpshooting. We'll have one for actually having done the first three months induction. <laughs> um, and I think we got the medal thing about right at the moment. I, I really do. And I think the Queen Elizabeth medal is... That's where it should but be. But in Australia, in New Zealand, they have them, don't they? Why not here? Um... I think we've probably got a lot of medals, but, I mean, it, it is what, to some extent, you give medals just for joining up or whatever, somehow, dis, somehow devalues it. Mm. It would be in keeping with the public mood at the moment, though, wouldn't it? No. No, I don't think it would. I think that's the impression that we're given by the people who actually say, yes, we want medals. I don't think so. I, don't th I think the, 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 the public mood yeah, is not for that fine. at all. Thank you. Talk to me about next week. What can we expect? Monday. Watch for Monday. Watch for Monday in Tehran. Uh, there's a bunch in Tehran, the opposition in Tehran, want to take to the streets. They say they want to do it because they want to support what's going on in Egypt and Tunisia. The Iranian authorities don't see it that way. The Iranian authorities are going to start putting people under house arrest this week. Oh. That's where the story for Egypt will shift to. So do, do you think, do you think it's, it is going to kick off? Or, I mean, I suppose it's difficult to say really in advance, isn't it? No, I think it will. I think there will be some sort of protest, and I think people will be arrested. And again, we seem to forget that in 2009, this is where the whole thing about the protest on the streets of authoritarian organisations started in modern times in 2009. William Hague, Foreign Secretary, has been doing his tour of the Middle East, five countries at least at the moment. Do you think he's achieved very much? It's fascinating that he went there. Uh, because what, what do you think it's saying? Uh, is it desperation? Or? No, no. I think you, you don't go to these countries unless you're actually invited. You can't just sort of turn up at the airport and say, by the way, I'm the Foreign Secretary. <laughs> uh, here's my passport. We well, certainly it. won't be doing that in Egypt. No, really. no. He, he can't do that. But what is fascinating, that he has been invited and that the United Kingdom doesn't want to be entirely uh, sort of set alongside the Americans. When this whole thing is finished... British industry, British government and also British uh, commercial organisations need to be in the Middle East and that's the importance of his visit. Christopher, thank you very much. Good to see you as ever. We'll be back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.